Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio for 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you bang up to date on all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Joining me as always with the uh, latest news is our Tech Central editor, Niall Kitson. Um, I suppose really kind of Google making the headlines this week uh, in France of all places. Uh, yes, and the first big win for GDPR. Uh, we've been waiting on an award like this because the last big sort of... You remember last year the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke and it was prosecuted in England and the ICO there fined Facebook. Do you remember how much? I don't, something pathetic. It was like £500,000. Oh, Pretty, pretty, you know, steal, if you want to steal an election, that's pretty cheap at the price, you know? Niall, you shouldn't have done that, and I'm taking 50 cent from your wages. There you go. That's exactly how that felt. Uh, so, the now, this isn't actually the first fine under GDPR that has been issued. There have been plenty of smaller wins around Europe, um, and the but biggest... Listen, oh, sorry, go on, go on, sorry, go on, the biggest? The biggest fine uh, to date had been in Portugal, where a hospital was fined... 400,000 euro for basically what they had was they had a low they had I think 250 doctors working in a hospital right but 900 odd doctors had access to patient information on the hospital database and not patient information related to their specific uh, area of expertise so you could have a brain surgeon who had been employed by the hospital at one stage but was no longer log in and see how you know Grandma Dusty is doing with her bowel replacement, or whatever it happens, or whatever to be. it happens to be. Well, what was it then that uh, that Google did uh, that infuriated the French so much? Okay, this is a little bit of a complicated case because it, it sort of trumps our understanding of GDPR as it is at the moment. Okay, so uh, pretty much as soon as GDPR came into effect, which was the twenty fifth of May last year, uh, the lawsuit started flying, and one of the first ones in was by uh, Noib, N-O-Y-B, or None of Your Business, which, uh, as you remember, is fronted by Max Schrems, who yeah, we spoke to last year. We did. Formerly Europe v. Facebook. And um, this was the same lawsuit was followed up in on the 28th by another privacy, um, uh, privacy campaign group in France. And their beef was with Google over the Android operating system. And specifically how the operating system is, uh, how an account is set up on your Android phone, right? So you've set up an account on your Android phone. Can you take us through the through the process? Well, generally, just as you're setting up the phone, it'll say, what is your uh, Google username? Um, yeah. What is your password? And then it goes off and sets everything up uh, accordingly. And if you don't have a Google account? Uh, I think you have to set one up. You have to set one okay. up. Uh, and not only that, you have to opt in to a whole load of products and services Google offers or in your case perhaps already offers seeing as you already have a Google account. Well this is it you see I wouldn't realise yeah. yeah. And if you wanted to change settings about um, that level of personalisation it is possible to do so but it's not made abundantly clear how you do so. 
or that you have the right to no. do so. I'll tell you one thing when I'm setting up a new Android phone that absolutely drives me nuts is that every single application, regardless of what it is, wants to know my location. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, kind of, it's like WhatsApp wants to know, needs to know your location. Why? Yeah. <laughs> Google Maps, fair enough. It's a navigation tool. I understand tool. maps, but like every application I have, Facebook wants to know your location. Why? Mm, Instagram <laughs> wants to know your location. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, exactly. Well, we you know. know who cares. So that is well, that was that was that was the one thing that I do remember the last time I set up a phone that was very annoying. Mm. So uh, our understanding of GDPR is that uh, you can take a case against um, any company you think is um, has you know impinged on your uh, right to privacy, and that company is prosecuted in the country in which they are based. Right. So Dusty Inc. Um, does something in France. Mm-hmm. A complaint goes to the data regulator in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, the data regulator in France goes, actually, Dusty Inc. is based in Dublin. OK. And it was you know, still subject to GDPR mm-hmm. and everything within. But if you want to make a complaint over this, you prostig- you go to Dusty Inc. in Dublin. Ah, OK. And that's where it's played out. And if Dusty Inc. is found to be in uh, liable... Then he has to pay. Okay. So uh, Google uh, have their European operations in Dublin, do they not? Well, ah, this is this is one of the. Um, I don't want to say flaws, but one of the wrinkles in this case mm. uh, that was pointed out because um, one of the things the French regulator said was that um, the case had to be played out in the French court or could have been played out under French regulations because um, the Office of the Data Protection Commissioner, and i got to be very careful the way um, I, I read this out, did not have the authority to do so, right? Um, and I have I have the exact wording here, so I want to be careful and, and fair to all in, um, in this uh, here. So uh, according to what we understand as GDPR, Dusty Inc. can be prosecuted in Ireland and Ireland alone because that's where you're based. However, uh, indeed, the GDPR establishes a one-stop shop mechanism, which is what we've just discussed, which provides an organization set up in the European Union shall have only one inter- interlocutor, which is the Data Protection Authority of the country where its main establishment is located. This authority serves uh, as a lead authority, right? That's what we understand already. It must therefore coordinate the, co- the cooperation between the other data protection authorities, which in case we would expect to be Ireland and France Mm -hmm. uh, before taking any decision about cross-border processing carried out in that company. However, and here is the wrinkle, uh, according to the CNIL, in this case, the discussions with other authorities, in particular with the Irish DPA where Google's European headquarters are situated, did not allow to consider that Google had a main establishment in the European Union. Indeed, when the CNIL initiated proceedings, the Irish establishment did not have a decision-making power on the processing of applications carried out in the context of the operating system Android and the services provided by Google LLC in relation to the creation, uh, creation of an account during the configuration of a mobile phone. So we're talking about that sweet spot where you're signing up for your account and these things are being installed on your phone and the standards implemented. 
The only thing, though, is that I don't think very much is going to change because 50 million dollars sounds like a, or 50 million euros sounds like a lot of money to you or to me. And if we were fined 50 million euro, we would have a problem. We certainly would. <laughs> but for Google, uh, that, that is nothing. And in fact, the maximum fine that they could have received would be four billion which would still probably be nothing to, to Google. But 50 million compared to the maximum fine of a potential 4 billion is still mm. nothing. And I bet you anything that uh, Google are going to go, OK, well, thanks for your decision and your opinion. Mm. Uh, we will appeal it. Of course. <laughs> which, of course, it'll be tied up again and mm. again and again and again. And then, you know, it'll all be kicked down the line for uh, uh, for years to go. So, yeah, that, that's realistically what's going to happen. And it's part of the way business is done in America. A decision yeah. comes down, you appeal immediately. It's part of the process um, on the assumption, you know, that this thing will be talked down at some stage. I mean, the, in theory, the um, penalty is 20 million dollars or 4 percent of global turnover, whichever is higher. Yeah. Anyway, we keep an eye on that and uh, and see what happens. Speaking mm. of money, uh, we did give a tenner to the uh, workmen next door to uh, grab some lunch. They were yep. obviously back from it. <laughs> <laughs> you go, guys. I should maybe should have given them twenty quid. Uh, but anyway, that's, <laughs> that's that's what happens. Uh, anyways, uh, it's a major project going on next door to the studio. So listen, what we do is we take a break from the news from there, but we go into our interview for this week. Yeah, thanks, Don. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's TechCentral.ie. Given this week's big decision against Google, we've decided to take a deeper look at data protection and data security. Dr. Paul Vixie is CEO of Farsight Security, but he is also the originator of the DNS domain name system that underpass the way our computers talk to each other. Tech Central's editor, Nal Kitsum, met up with them at the Shelburne Hotel in Dublin to find out more. I guess with any technology uh, and any technology that inevitably gets in view, uh, abused, you, you have to look at the problem that that technology was originally set up to solve. So with the domain name system, what problem was there initially? Initially, we uh, started to see cheaper computers, right? The, uh, the, the first thing that ever was called an internet uh, had mainframe, you know, million-dollar mainframe computers connected to it, and uh, because they were so expensive, there were very few of them. And so keeping a list of the names of all those hosts was something that you could do as a human secretarial function. And, uh, you know, keeping that list up to date was easy. But we knew that the Internet had to get a lot bigger. And we knew that it had to get bigger than any set of human secretarial uh, staff could possibly keep up with. And so it was really for scale. Um, Sadly, in those days, although we knew it was going to get bigger, we did not realize that it was eventually going to have devices so cheap and people so untrained uh, that every vulnerability that was in our system would eventually be found and abused. I guess one of the major entry points when we look at systems at the moment is the Internet of Things and people buying connected devices and not realizing um, you know, that they might be insecure from the get-go or that these things are actually collecting data on people and feeding them back to a server somewhere for ad targeting purposes. Uh, that is certainly true. And, you know, we've in the electrical era, when we first started to uh, put electricity into homes instead of gas piping for lamps and heaters, uh, we burned down a few houses by having unsafe devices that were plugged into the electrical grid And that created a system of regulations, Underwriters Laboratory and others, 
um, where you really could not sell a toaster unless it had been tested in some way and had, you know, that we had some kind of confidence it wasn't going to burn your house down while your family was sleeping. Um, but there was a time delay between when we introduced it and when we noticed that it was kind of unsafe and needed some supervision by government. Uh, and we're in that zone right now. Uh, so an IoT device uh, is very cheap. Uh, if you buy an Internet-connected light bulb, um, they are the manufacturer of that is competing against every other manufacturer that's uh, a race to the bottom price-wise, and they are uh, ultimately not going to make any money from selling you the light bulb. All the money you pay is going to go into your supply chain. Manufacturer gets nothing except your personal data, which they then monetize. And that sort of data economy is pretty much driving all the major brands that we know at the moment, the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebook. But we're getting to the stage where these companies are being exposed, exposed as having an ethical vacuum at the centre. Um, where do you think the uh, issue of regulation surfaces and who gets to control uh, regulation? And I guess, importantly, on which side of the Atlantic does that happen? I think that... Uh Regulation goes through periods where there's a fad to add it, and then there's another period later where there's a fad to remove it. Um, and at the moment, uh, the United States of America is dominated by a very conservative uh, and wealthy clique of people who uh, really don't like regulation. So we're probably not going to see very much uh, created there during at least the, the current administration. Uh, on the other hand, GDPR is a good example of uh, how Europe is leading the world by coming up with some uh, reasonable rules about what I think of as the, the trail of digital breadcrumbs that we all leave behind us and who owns those. And uh, in Europe, as a matter of uh, European law, I own mine, you own yours, and anyone who wants them has to ask us uh, and they have to tell us what they intend to do with them. And um, I think this is a good start. One of the things people are repeatedly told when it comes to cybersecurity is to make sure that your um, antivirus protection is, uh, is kept current and that you're a little bit um, uh, wary of the sort of threats that are out there, particularly ransomware emails. However, we're seeing more and more investment in cybersecurity, but the threat level seems to be either constant or increasing. What do you think are the, is the reason behind this? I think the <clears throat> excuse me the growth in cybersecurity spending uh, is dominated by companies corporations who have you know enterprise networks I'm, I'm not sure that the average end user like you or I is uh, increasing our spending year year over year on uh, you know better cybersecurity for our telephones for our smartphones uh, but there, there there is a lot of market growth uh, but sadly a lot of it is checklist driven in other words uh, the, the, some manager, some uh, corporate leader who makes an investment in cybersecurity that then increases the spending in, in that industry segment is doing so not because they have any way to measure any improvement that may come from that in terms of their lived security as a corporation, but rather because it is the reasonable and customary thing to do. And if you are attacked, uh, you won't be asked uh, so much, uh, did you do something that was effective? Uh, you'll be asked, did you do the reasonable and customary thing? And so at the moment, a lot of spending is based on that type of checklist thinking. Uh, you could even call it CYA. 
um, and not by, yeah, we're unsafe, I know what my risks are, and I'm going to mitigate them with some investments. People often wonder that it may feel like a, a game of basically protection without any, any offense, that you're playing defense all the time when it comes to antivirus. At Farsight, you do things slightly differently. Uh, that's certainly true. Um, there are. Uh, it's difficult to do to behave offensively if what you want to do is protect yourself. Uh, right? I, I do not advocate that you do any kind of hackback or DDoS or anything else where you uh, maybe use some of the bad actors' own techniques against them to uh, maybe har- do, do them some harm. On the other hand, there are some perfectly legal responsible adult uh, safe things that you can do to do them some economic harm right a uh, a bad actor who's attacking you has co-opted some number of other computers they've inst- you know put their malicious software in places so they can jump around quite a bit before they reach you so you'll never know where they really came from uh, you can take those away if if you uh, are able to report where the things came to you from, then you can ultimately put back pressure on their supply chain, and you can put some back pressure on their supply chain of other things like Internet identifiers, uh, for example, Internet addresses or Internet domain names. Um, And ultimately, anything that we do that only protects us uh, is a waste of time, maybe even counterproductive, because uh, the, the bad guy will have all of his assets after his attack against you fails, uh, but you will have taught them, you will have trained them a little bit about how to be a better bad guy, and they will go after someone else who could easily be one of your own suppliers or one of your own customers. So you still lose unless the bad guy loses. And that issue of the, the bad guy, traditionally we've been given the stereotype of you know, the 400-pound guy, 400 guy in the basement working on his own, uh, the idea of a state actor doesn't really come into it. So what exactly are the nature of threats people are looking at at the moment? Is it the nation state? Is it the guy in the basement? Is it both? Well, I think as uh, the highly successful and uh, public attack against Sony proved, um, there are plenty of state actors out there um, that are willing to use their considerable powers Uh, to achieve their ends. Now, most of us are beneath notice. I don't think that there is any state actor anywhere who would attack me because I I am insignificant in their eyes. Uh, But certainly any large company should have to worry about that. I know that there is a widely publicized attack uh, against Google and Google's network uh, that was suspected to have originated in China, caused a lot of headlines at the time. Um, and that, what that means is if you're large enough, you do have to worry about attacks by people larger than you. Uh, but if you're, if you're tiny, uh, really you're much less likely to be targeted. The, the attacks against you are fairly anonymous in, in most cases. The bad guys don't have your identity. They're not going to personalize their attack against you unless you are important in some way. For example, uh, Google would be important in some way, but I'm not. One of the more common attacks we're seeing at the moment is the ransomware email with the Bitcoin uh, address down the bottom and the body of the text written in fairly poor English saying, we've got you in a pretty compromising situation. People wouldn't do these attacks if they weren't profitable. Um, How effective are these? Well, I don't have exact numbers uh, due to to jet lag, but uh, I do know that they are profitable and that the the, the losses are measured in the tens of millions of U.S. dollars. 
So that's people actually paying, actually uh, going out on the dark web somehow and buying the necessary bitcoins and transferring it to the address because they uh, legitimately fear that that uh, that attack could be real. Uh, it really can't be real, and uh, people should not worry about it. Um, and and yet uh, we are all human. We have families. We have worries. Uh, we are trained to think about risks if we're presented with them, and it's hard to know which ones to ignore. Uh, but I will say as a broader point that uh, spam has always relied on the cooperation of the victims. Um, the reason that you're getting spam today is because somebody bought something yesterday that was advertised to them by spam, and you have a legitimate gripe with that person because if everybody else would stop buying things that were advertised to them by spam, then spam itself would disappear. So we are really part of the problem. It's arguable that we're locked in a bit of a digital cold war at the moment where, yep, China has attacked Sony, but we've also got in from, you know, examples of uh, Israeli actors having a poke around in Iran uh, and therefore. So what exactly is the notion of a border like anymore? What is a digital border as opposed to a physical border or does such a thing exist? Um, at the moment, such a thing does not exist. Uh, I want to say uh, first, though, According to the headlines I read, it was North Korea, not China, who attacked Sony. Um, nevertheless, a border that was uh, built to withstand kinetic attacks, in other words, uh, marching armies or perhaps uh, mobile tanks or uh, even the airspace, you know, you might be worried about airplanes and bombers, uh, your government can protect you against that. Your alliances, your treaties can protect you against those things for the most part. Um, but there's nothing your government can do to keep bird flu out of your country because birds don't know where the borders are. They go where they go, and if they bring an infection with them, that's a problem. Um, and the Internet is much more like bird flu in that way because uh, the border is its not a bright line on the map. It's not a place where you can say, uh, you may not pass unless I inspect you, right? The, uh, the global economy is extremely well connected. Um, and so really the only... A uh, possible counterexample of that would be the Great Firewall of China, uh, which they invest an incredible amount of money in, um, and certainly they, they're able to keep Facebook out of their country, and you know possibly that will uh, help them avoid the types of political instability that uh, Cambridge Analytica and other companies have been able to stir up, uh, both in Britain and in the, uh, the, the elections of 2016 in, in the United States. Um, but just the same, no one is, uh, no one else, I think, is going to equal China's investment in the Great Firewall, nor should they, because I think that China's Great Firewall probably hurts it more economically than it helps it uh, and is eventually going to have to pass into history. And what that means is really in the digital era, uh, borders are irrelevant, and all of us have to be prepared to defend ourselves against foreign attackers in a way that in the kinetic era, we, we would outsource that to our government. We would say, that's why I pay taxes. Well, uh, your government is not uh, failing to serve you in this way. They, they, they actually cannot do anything about the digital attacks that come into the country from outside and uh, seek your bank account password. 
We made quick mention before of GDPR. Looking at things from a, an American perspective, it seems to have been a little bit of a Y2K project, particularly on the part of media websites who know that they have a large readership in Europe but were trying to protect themselves from GDPR liability. I know when I logged on to certain newspapers around the 25th of May, I was getting warnings saying, sorry, inaccessible from Europe. So... Has it been a, a little bit of a Y2K project? Has it been a little bit of a, wait, of a wait and see? Has it been, you know, we're starting to see big fines like that levied against Google? Are we going to see a slightly more um, serious effort on the part of, uh, I'm going to say, American companies just to pick on them for the moment? Well, um, the as we speak, yesterday's news was that the government of France had fined Google 57 million, probably euros or dollars, um, I'm not sure that's a lot of money to Google. I think they may have to ratchet that up a bit to get, get Google's attention. But um, there is a similarity to Y2K in that uh, when GDPR was announced uh, in the, the year or two leading up to May 25th of this year when it, uh, when it went live, um, everybody had to audit their systems. And um, the, 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 they were not going to be able to claim ignorance of the law if it turned out that what they were doing could create uh, uh, you know, liabilities like fines. Um, so the, everybody really did take a look at that, and a lot of websites uh, now ask you, gee, you know, can, I, can I save your cookies? Uh, the, the Europe is making me ask you this question. And I would say thank you, Europe, for making everybody ask that question because I think our permission really ought to be obtained before our data is used. But um, it's unlike Y2K in that not a lot had to be done by your average company, right? They have to have a data protection officer, but uh, most companies, including Farsight, we're already uh, avoiding any personally identifiable information in, in their operations. Uh, so for us, yeah, we had the Y2K level audit of our processes, but what we didn't have to do is rewrite all of our software to deal with four-digit years, which actually had to be done by most companies uh, in the Y2K. Uh, so I would say it's uh, not as big as the, uh, the end of Unix time is going to be in 2038. Um, all old Unix computers are going to say that it's 1969, and that's going to be a much bigger issue. And that was Nile Kitson talking to Paul Vixie, CEO of Farsight Security. That's it for our show this week. Remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. Or listen to us, of course, every week online or Fridays at 5pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thanks so much for listening. Take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com Tech Central